This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters, our guest today, James W. Douglas, lays out the journey that led JFK in the course of three years from his position as a traditional Cold Warrior to his determination to break with the logic of the Cold War and lead the world in an entirely different direction. The sequence of steps led his adversaries in the military and intelligence establishment to view him as a virtual traitor who had to be eliminated. Douglas is a longtime peace activist and writer. His books include The Nonviolent Cross and Resistance and Contemplation. James W. Douglas, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hello, Nathan. Hi. How are you today? I'm doing fine in Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, I was just going to ask you. You're in, you're in Alabama today, and you've, you've, you uh, are part of the Catholic Worker, or you help establish a Catholic Worker uh, hospitality house there, am I right? Yes, uh, my wife Shelley and I have a house of hospitality called Mary's House. Uh, we've had it almost two decades here now in Birmingham, wow. Alabama. And how is work there at the house? Are things well? In in these days, it's rather intense. There are yeah. a lot of people who need uh, who need help, and we do uh, not only hospitality but uh, peace and justice work, and uh, that's kind of overwhelming right now. Yeah. Can imagine now. Now, with all that going on, what, what inspired you to write a book about JFK at this time, forty years or more past the uh, his assassination? Well, forty years ago, um, I was a professor of religion at the University of Hawaii, and Martin Luther King was assassinated. That was what ignited my interest, not John Kennedy's uh-huh. death. And um, we. Uh, Students and I, in a course called The Theology of Peace, um, got involved in resisting the Vietnam War, uh, went to jail, and that was the beginning of the end of my academic career. <laughs> so uh, that turned me, it turned me around uh, into nonviolence as a way of life, not a course in a, in a college seminar, and so I needed to understand King's assassination. And as I traveled that path, I couldn't help but discover the parallels to John Kennedy and also Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So I, I started working on all four of them, and the first story is John Kennedy's. That's why I wrote the book. Well, so you're, in, you're in, uh, intending to go into uh, uh, Martin Luther King and the others, then? Yes, it's the same story. Uh-huh. It's the same story. It's a fourfold story, and the first one chronologically is JFK's, uh, but... Martin Luther King's is the one that turned me around, yeah. and uh, and then I I couldn't help but see, well, what about this guy over here in the White House, and uh, what about his story with all the parallels in terms of uh, the nature of the assassination to Martin Luther King's? So I, I began working on that one, especially because of its priority uh, in time. And uh, Martin Luther King's, I had a, an actual trial, which I attended in 1999 in Memphis, and heard uh, 70 witnesses describe a government plot, um, and heard a jury 
reached the conclusion that U.S. government agencies had assassinated Martin Luther King. So I know all about that one, and uh, I believe uh, the, the one prior to it, John Kennedy's, is just as much out in the open. Mm-hmm. Well, in the title, the subtitle of the book is Why He Died and Why It Matters. Let's start with the why he died and the journey, that you, the arc yes. of John Kennedy's life and, and uh, why it is that uh, uh, you believe that he was assassinated. He died because he had turned from being a cold warrior to a conviction that he had to become a peacemaker. He turned first uh, in terms of a significant event at the Bay of Pigs. The CIA set him up, tried to manipulate him into doing what he would not do, that is, escalate the battle, send in U.S. troops. He realized he'd been lied to uh, about what would happen in Cuba, that there'd be a revolution, and but about this, even the terrain where the the CIA-trained exile community was, was invading the island. He'd been lied to, manipulated, and um, he was furious. He said, I want to splinter the CIA in a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. Mm. And he started to cut back the CIA's budget. He fired the hierarchy at the top, Alan Dulles and his major assistants. Uh, he, he was moving in a direction that was directly counter to his national security state. And that move became um, decisive in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, you just, you just talked, you mentioned Alan Dulles. There's the, the sort of the brothers, uh, John Foster and Alan yes. Dulles, who were really, in many ways, going back to the uh, establishment of the uh, the national security state with the CIA, the, the order in 1946, I believe, that established uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, yes. These are two of the, really, the pillars of the American intelligence uh, community going back to that period of time, leading forward uh, through the assassination of John Kenny, are they not? Yes. Alan Dulles was, of course, the Secretary of State under Eisenhower, and, and Alan Dulles, his brother, was the director of the CIA. They basically controlled the Cold War establishment. Eisenhower ratified their decisions. He was, he was a general who was taking orders from people he deferred to uh, as his national security managers, and the same had been uh, true of Truman when he established the CIA and a doctrine of plausible deniability came into effect, which is the same doctrine that um, moved right into the assassination of John Kennedy, whereby anything the CIA does in terms of its criminal activity has to be plausibly deniable in order to prevent any tracing of the source to the United States government, so all kinds of intermediaries, all kinds of cutouts have to be set up, and the agency thereby becomes unaccountable to anybody, and that is extremely dangerous. One other actor in all of this is sort of, as I look back in the history of the United States, going through the the 50s and 60s and in the period yes. of time when John Kennedy was uh, president, uh, there were also some other very intense uh, uh, relationships, uh, tension, uh, I can't help but think of J. Edgar Hoover's uh, and his hatred of uh, of the kind of uh, person that John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy represented to him, and the and his established uh, the FBI, the National Police, if you will. 
did they did they factor into any of this? Did J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI factor into what happened? Absolutely, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was especially uh, and profoundly involved in the the cover up, the Warren Commission in terms of its resources and in terms of the the lies it put out is is just presenting all of the FBI's cover up information and uh Hoover is the is the center of all that um how much was he involved in the assassination per se i don't think the uh FBI is as much the coordinating coordinating agency as the CIA the CIA's um fingerprints are all over the crime, less so the FBI's. The FBI was not in the tightest circle. I don't think Hoover was in the tightest circle of the uh, national security plot to kill Kennedy, but he was certainly profoundly involved. Now, let's, let's move up to, uh, to Vietnam. Uh, seemed like Kennedy was continuing our involvement there. Uh, what evidence do we have that he was planning on drawing out? Kennedy was a reluctant uh, participant in the Vietnam policy. In the previous um, focus in uh, Southeast Asia, as he came into office, Laos, he took a stand against a war in Laos. And he felt, uh, after he took that stand and supported a neutral government to the dismay of the CIA and um, the uh, military establishment in the U.S., he then felt he had to uh, consent to uh, what turned out to be uh, more and more and more advisors in Vietnam. But he was determined not to get as heavily involved in Vietnam as any of his military advisors wanted. They, in 1961, they were urging him to send in U.S. combat troops. He would, just as in the Bay of Pigs, he would he would never uh, send in U.S. combat troops. And he kept telling his joint chiefs in in um, '62 and into '63, "I want a way out. I want, um, you know, I want a withdrawal plan." They wouldn't give it to him. Finally, he pushed it through uh, through his Secretary of Defense McNamara, and he actually issued a National Security Memorandum 263 in October of '63 for withdrawal from Vietnam. So it's it's concretely in U.S. policy and was, of course, um, reversed as soon as he was assassinated. Now, uh, James, we're speaking with James uh, Douglas. The book is JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. Um, there are a couple of, now this book is, is uh, not just speculation. There's a, there's a, you did a lot of really the reporting. You went in and found out about people. There were a couple of people uh, key to this story. Yes. Uh, Norman Cousins is one who... Uh, there is a relationship between uh, John Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev, who was the uh, the premier of the Soviet Union at that time, and obviously a the Cold War uh, adversary of the United States. Uh, and uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that and how that influenced what uh, where the direction Kennedy was moving? Well, I knew Norman Cousins. I was in Rome at the time all this was happening, and Cousins was in and out of an office that I worked in on his way to and from the Soviet Union. So I knew the story of Kennedy, Khrushchev, and Pope John Twenty-Third in the 1960s, just after it happened. But what was happening is an incredible story that 
in the midst of the Cold War, these two men, these supposed total enemies, Kennedy and Khrushchev, had a secret correspondence between themselves, and they had a secret intermediary, a man named Pope John the Twenty-Third, who had taken a public stand in the midst of the missile crisis uh, against the war that was about to destroy the world, and uh, with secret uh, consultations with both Kennedy and Khrushchev, he issued an appeal that Khrushchev said was the greatest source of hope for him in the midst of that darkness. And from that point on, uh, Norman Cousins would go from the White House to the Vatican to Moscow with uh, secret messages back and forth. And John the Twenty-Third, uh, who issued an, inc- an incredible um, document, extraordinary statement for peace called Pachamenteris, which is the background to President Kennedy's uh, American University address, uh, he became a kind of um, informal spiritual advisor as he was dying in cancer to Khrushchev, who loved him, and and Kennedy, who couldn't <laughs> could could hardly um, admit publicly what was going on. He was the first Catholic in office, and he was not supposed to be yeah. talking to the Pope. <laughs> in fact, that was in fact one of the most famous speeches that John Kennedy gave, uh, yes. running for president, was a speech yes. in which he said, "I I answer basically to the U.S. Constitution and not to the Pope." Mm-hmm. So here we have a situation where he's actually in. In negotiations, if you will, with the Pope, so that's kind of a yeah, funny, funny and the twist. and the Pope is the Pope is actually trying to preserve the heart of the Constitution, right? In which which is international law, not the CIA's plausible deniability, mm-hmm. and trying to preserve the world. He's he has no Pope has no interest in influencing U.S. politics in a any partisan way. He wants to go beyond politics, and uh, when he when he issued that that papal letter, peace on earth. The first person in the world, I believe, to receive an advanced copy of that papal encyclical was Nikita Khrushchev in Russian translation. Norman Cousins handed it to him in Moscow. Khrushchev, couldn't, who loved Pope John the Twenty-Third, couldn't believe that he was being given that honor. And then uh, Cousins put around his neck a papal medal from the Pope. <laughs> and when when Cousins left, Khrushchev went into a meeting with his his uh, leaders of the Soviet Union, his commissars and all, and he had this papal medal around his neck, and they, nobody said anything. He took it off and <laughs> dropped it on the dropped it on the floor, and finally somebody said, "What's that?" And he said, "Oh, it's just a medal from the Pope." <laughs> and uh, when 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 Cousins told Kennedy that story, uh, Kennedy smiled and he said, "You know, there are some things that Chairman Khrushchev can do that I cannot do." Well, so here we have this this situation, this uh, incredible and unreported relationship developing between yeah. Nikita Khrushchev and John Kennedy, uh, yeah. with the idea of essentially disengaging. I assume disengaging this uh, this level of tension uh, between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. Am I correct? Yes, and it happened. It happened of all times when they were at total odds in the missile crisis, and Kennedy was being uh, pushed relentlessly by uh, Curtis LeMay and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and and most of his uh, advisors in the Executive Committee of the National Security Council to invade Cuba and to barrage the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons. And he was losing control of his own government. He sent uh, Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, his brother, to Anatoly Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador in Washington, and said, we need your help. <laughs> We're going under. 
And uh, Dobrynin immediately wired Khrushchev in Moscow, and Khrushchev turned to his foreign minister, Andrei Gromyko, and said, amazingly, we have to let Kennedy know that we want to help him. He could hardly believe what he'd said, and then he said it again. Yes, we now have a common cause to save the world from those pushing us toward war. And at that point, everything turned upside down, and for the remaining 13 months of Kennedy's life, he and Khrushchev became, in essence, uh, although they continued to struggle, of course, they, in essence, they became partners in peace, each of them closer to the other than either was to his own national security state. So we had this situation, uh, and then we, with the, the missile crisis and such, and then yes. we have uh, this speech at the American University. I want to, because we're, we're running relatively short on time, we, uh, so I, w- I know that this was a, a seminal speech on part of John Kennedy, it really did outline the, the broad outline of where the United States and the rest of the world should be moving. June 10, 1963, the graduation at American University, Kennedy said, in essence, I want to end the Cold War. Mm-hmm. He unilaterally uh, pledged he would, not, uh, he would not explode another nuclear weapon uh, in the atmosphere unless somebody else did so. A unilateral step. He said, I want to negotiate a nuclear test ban treaty. I want to go to Moscow. I want to go to their capital. I want to get out of Washington, D.C., although he didn't say that. And um, he did that. He did that. In the uh, next six weeks, uh, he and Khrushchev negotiated the nuclear test ban treaty. And that American University address, which is filled with compassion for the Soviet people and their their suffering in World War II, um, became for Khrushchev, as he said, the greatest greatest speech ever given by an American president since Roosevelt, and it became the basis for their trust, their deepening trust. And then uh, Khrushchev convinced Castro, Fidel Castro, to work with Kennedy, and Castro was alienated from Khrushchev because Khrushchev had pulled out the missiles from Cuba in the missile crisis without consulting Castro. And Khrushchev invited Castro to Moscow and convinced him in Moscow that he was right to do that, and that Kennedy and he had to work together, Kennedy and, and Castro. And so Kennedy became uh, a secret uh, correspondent with, uh, with Castro, with intermediaries, in the fall of 63, um, just before he also decided to, uh, or issued his national security memorandum to pull out of Vietnam. And at the very moment that Kennedy was being assassinated, he had an intermediary, Jean Daniel, a Paris reporter who had just met with him in Washington, meeting with Fidel Castro, and Castro taking deep hope from what he was learning from Danielle about Kennedy's uh, expressions to him. So there is... So, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, the, so there really is a, a, the scenario, that this sort of uh, unfolding saga that you've, uh, you, you're, ta- yes. you're talking about here is what precipitated... Do you think there had been plans by the CIA, and, and I know there's some mob connections in all of this, do you think there had they had been fomenting uh, uh, this almost from the beginning of the Kennedy administration? They always viewed him very suspiciously. Anyway, do you think that this is something that became? Uh, did did why why Dallas? Why then? You said there was an attempt on Kennedy's life prior uh, in Chicago three weeks prior to this. Uh, yeah. What I mean, what why then? Was it just that the time was right and? Uh, well, it, it, I think it was. I think, as you're suggesting, is a contingency plan that goes way, way back yeah. to the beginning of Kennedy's presidency. He was, from the standpoint of the CIA, a suspicious character, a wild card, 
a guy who liked Lumumba over in, in Africa while the CIA was in the process of assassinating him and killing him before Kennedy became president because Kennedy was a supporter of third world nationalism, including Lumumba. They had to get rid of Lumumba before Kennedy became president. Yeah. So it goes way, way back. But the Chicago plot that took place three weeks before Kennedy's death in Dallas is critical to understanding Dallas, and it shows just how determined um, the CIA was to kill Kennedy, because it wasn't just Dallas. They were going to get him, if not in in uh, Dallas, well, they were trying to get him in Chicago, and it didn't work in Chicago because there were whistleblowers, and the Chicago plot was uncovered, a uh, great a uh, Secret Service agent named Abraham Bolden uh, uncovered it, uh, and um, I've interviewed him seven times about the Chicago plot. It's exactly the same plot as in Dallas. The uh, the scapegoat was in a building right overlooking the motorcade route of Kennedy going through Chicago November 2, 1963. He was got, supposed to go to a football game. There was a rifle team of four snipers prepared to kill him. At that time, um, Secret Service had was notified of the plot and the two of the rifle team members they actually arrested and to this day they we don't know their names because they covered it all up yeah. in order to allow the assassination and, to go forward and, in Dallas and by the way fun fact uh, Jack Ruby who was Jack Rubenstein was from Chicago he was out of yes. uh, that area so yes. um, wow we've got so much I, I'm I mean, we really are I, I we're speaking with James Douglas the book is JFK and the unspeakable why he died, and why it matters. And let's end it with that. Why does it matter today? What are we, are, it, there's, there's so much uh, uh, anti-conspiratorial talk these days, and usually people who bring this up are, are often, uh, I should say not usually, they're often uh, put into the conspiracy nut category. Dismissed. And, yeah, dismissed, rather than... And, yeah. and I, I and I I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on this, James. I I, I just it, it matters to me. And, and talk a little bit about that. Talk talk why it matters. It matters forty years it, later. It matters uh, forty six years later because the same story is happening all over again right now. Yeah. As we know, the current president is having to make a big decision on Afghanistan. His generals are dictating the terms of that decision. They're lobbying publicly to tell him what to do. That's the same thing that was happening with Kennedy. He was being told what to do by General Curtis LeMay uh, and his other generals in the CIA and his national security state were telling him exactly what to do. He had to face them down. Obama has faces the same situation today in Washington, D.C. We face the same situation in Washington, D.C. in our entire country. The national security state didn't evaporate with the assassination in Dallas. It's become even stronger since then. The reason it matters is because the story is happening all over again right now. And unless we speak the truth and live the truth, speak the truth about what happened in 46 years ago, instead of going with all the propaganda that's come down since then about it, speak the truth about what we need to do to resist the war in Afghanistan and, of course, Iraq and Pakistan, and what the president needs to do on our behalf. If we don't do that, the story's going to happen all over again. You're absolutely right. I, uh, Seymour Hersh just wrote a, an article uh, in The New Yorker 
about yes. the disdain that the military establishment has for Barack Obama. Uh, they've been pushing him uh, into decisions that he's not prepared to make. He's looking at all of his options. Just before we came on the air with you, I just heard this over the weekend. It's a stunning set of statistics. The United States is spending $1 million for every American soldier in Afghanistan for, per year. We, yes. the, we're spending $65 billion in Afghanistan this coming year. And yes. the gross national product of Afghanistan is $2 billion. This is insanity. This is a, and and, and all, everyone who has looked at this uh, situation says that it's, uh, this is Barack's Vietnam. It is, it is a disaster in the making. Uh, and hopefully uh, n- the same fate does not await Barack Obama for some very tough decisions that we hope he will make. We have to understand it past or it gets repeated. Yeah. Well, this, this is a terrific book, uh, praised uh, by by many who know the subject very, very well, uh, and uh, one you should be very proud of. The book is JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. James Douglas, thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Thank you, guys. Thank really you. appreciate it. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.